Welcome to the Dylan Experience. This is episode 34. I'm your host, Dylan Sessler, and we are here with a repeat uh, repeat guest, Katie Hoffman, obviously. Um, this time, we're going to be focusing more on her story and less on my impact on her. So, Katie, let's get right into it. Let's start hey, with your story this time. So, tell me, tell me about you. Tell me about everything you've been through. Tell me what has happened in your life. Tell me where, how you've come to be here and now. Well, you were actually the first person on TikTok that I told my story to in its entirety. And um, before that, the only people that had really heard my story were my therapist and a a couple select people, including my parents. And unfortunately for me, um, it, it always didn't, it didn't always go well, you know, telling my story or, you know, sharing my truth, but you were the first person that I told my story to even through a computer screen and you showed me nothing but love and empathy and support. And, you know, that was what I needed. And that's what I hadn't had for the first, you know, 41 years of my life or 40 years of my life was that, you know, love and understanding and compassion with emotions and feelings and everything. So that was completely new to me and foreign, but it was probably one of the best experiences that I had when it came to talking about my traumas and talking about my story, because I'd never had that. Yeah. My, my therapist, you know, is understanding and compassionate and supportive, but he's being paid to, you know, he's being paid to listen to this. Um, You weren't, you weren't being paid. You weren't, you know, obligated to listen. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a journey. Um, I turned 43 almost three weeks ago. And, um, you know, it's, it's been an interesting ride. It's been a difficult ride. Um, A lot of blood, sweat and tears sometimes literally, but um, I guess I'll start from the beginning and you can jump in whenever. Um, Like I said, I'm 43. I was born um, with a disability called spina bifida, which basically means split spine. So there was a hole in my back and, um, you know, 40 some years ago, they didn't do ultrasounds. So the doctors didn't know, my parents didn't know. So everybody was a complete surprise to everybody the day that I was born and um, nobody really knew what to expect. I'm fortunate enough, or at least was fortunate enough up until recently to, you know, be able to walk with either crutches or, you know, a walker when I was little. And a lot of people that I know with this disability or my, my type of this disability, which is the most severe, um, don't walk. They're confined to a wheelchair. So I was extremely fortunate for the first you know, 41 years of my life. Now I pretty much am using a wheelchair unless I'm in my own apartment. So, um, you know, growing up being the only kid basically from kindergarten through 12th grade with any type of physical disability was extremely difficult because if something was said to me, something was done to me, I was bullied by the end of the school day, everybody knew because I was literally the only one. And so, you know, there was, there was a lot of bullying, a lot of making fun, 
Um, you know, this is back in the, the 80s and the early 90s. And so there was no social media. And I thank God for that because I literally would not be sitting here today having this conversation with you had there been social media and bullying online because I wouldn't have survived it. Um, I barely survived what I went through. And so um, I have two younger sisters. Liz will be 40 in June and Sam will be 31 in October. And so, you know, growing up as the oldest, but the one with the challenges was always difficult because, you know, as the oldest, you're supposed to set, set the tone or, you know, be the one that does, does everything first. And if you screw it up, your siblings know how to do it differently. Or if you do something wrong, they get away with it, you know, better than you would have. So, um, I didn't have a lot of those experiences that kids would have. You know, I didn't play sports. I didn't have a ton of friends. I didn't, you know, go to the school dances. I didn't do those normal, you know, quote unquote normal kid things growing up. I, I did have my own activities and my own things that I did, but I was not necessarily considered a normal child to the outside world. Um, and so that was really difficult, you know, and I spent a lot of time by myself in my room, reading, writing. Um, as soon as I could form sentences, I, you know, I picked up a journal and a pen or a pencil and just started writing everything down because I didn't have any other way to get it out and to talk about it because nobody would listen. And so um, that was probably one of the hardest things was dealing with all of the emotions and the feelings knowing that I was different, being treated differently, being treated like there was something wrong with me, but not having anybody to talk to about it because nobody would understand. And so, you know, I spent a lot of days in my room after school, just staring at the wall, thinking, um, wondering what my life would be like if I was, you know, quote unquote, considered normal. And, you know, and I use the air quotes because I know that I'm normal. I know that everything about me is okay and that I am who I am supposed to be, but that's not how it was, you know, 40 years ago when I was a kid, you know, going to school and being bullied and being taunted, not only by kids, but by teachers. Yeah. The things that, that I would hear when I was in the bathroom next to the teacher's lounge would completely blow somebody's mind because the, the things that the, the adults would say would just would not be tolerated in today's society. But I didn't say anything back then because I was told to respect my elders, you know, and do what I was told and just live with it. So it was not always easy. So, um, you know, I, I went to school every day. I was, was told pretty much on a daily basis by kids or teachers that I was stupid, that I would never amount to anything. Um, that I would never graduate high school, even my own family, you know, my own parents, my mom didn't think that I was going to, you know, graduate high school or go to college or make something of myself like we're all supposed to. Obviously, I did graduate. It wasn't easy, but I did graduate from high school. You know, I, I learned from a very young age, if somebody tells me I can't do something or I won't do something, I'm going to do everything in my power to do that. So I worked my ass off, you know, in school, 
didn't get the good grades, but I graduated high school. I got into college. I have three college degrees at this point. Um, you know, and it was, like I said, blood, sweat, and tears. Sometimes every single day I would come home crying because of just how terribly I was treated and the things that I was told, but yet I didn't say anything. I never opened my mouth. I never, I never told anybody, you know, and I started therapy. Well, my mom put me in therapy. I heard, I found this out in high school. My mom put me in therapy when I was five years old to see how I would quote unquote react being in school with normal children when I was old enough to go to kindergarten. And I found that out when I was in high school and, you know, starting from a very young age, I'm not normal. There's something wrong with me. Um, so I've had to spend the last 43 years, not only proving to myself, but to everybody around me that I am normal and that I am okay. And that, you know, I may do things differently, but I'm still gonna get to the end result. I'm still gonna finish the race. Um, and so, you know, I did go to college. It was, it was, college was my first public school experience. I did private Catholic schools for 13 years. So college was my first forte into public school. That was, that was a, an interesting situation. Um, but it was also a really great one because I wasn't the only person with a disability. I wasn't somebody, I wasn't the only person that looked different and that stood out. Um, but it also brought on its challenges, you know, growing up, being away from home for the first time, you know, almost five hours away, not having anybody. So it was like, okay, I'm starting over. I still don't have anybody to lean on. I still don't have anybody to understand, but I've made it the first 19 years of my life, you know, and you and I have talked about this. Um, you know, I've battled anxiety, depression pretty much my entire life or as far back as I can remember. Um, a lot of it was undiagnosed. The PTSD wasn't diagnosed until I was in my early thirties, but um, every single day, starting from the age of 11 until last year when I woke up on my birthday of 42, I woke up not wanting to be alive. I woke up wanting to die. And no kid should live with that. No kid should have those thoughts in their head. Um, no kid should want to write a suicide note at 11, 12 years old. And I know what happens and it's awful and it breaks my heart. But um, I guess I jumped ahead a lot of years. Yeah, can I, can I interrupt? Oh yeah, quick? interrupt me anytime. Absolutely. Is, obviously you've thought about this a lot. Um, and I don't know if I've ever asked you this question, but when, when you look, when you look back at, at 11 years old and, and beyond, and like that idea of wanting to end your life, um, do you, do you realize like, or do you have an understanding of why that happened or why, why you felt that way for, for as long as you have? That's actually a really good question. And I think I've tried to think about for the last year because, you know, last year on my birthday was the first day that I woke up not wanting to die. And that's still the same, you know, three weeks ago on my birthday. 
So I've thought a lot about it. I just don't think I've found the answer yet. I, I don't know if I ever will, but I'm going to keep trying to find it because I don't know what was going through my head at 11, 12 years old, having those thoughts and, you know, having a plan in the back of my mind, but thankfully never acting on it until I got to high school. Um, you know, I was 17 years old and sophomore in high school the first time I attempted suicide at my parents' house and I didn't tell anybody. I literally told no one. And there will be, you know, throughout my story, a subsequent at least 20 times in my life where I've had those thoughts and I've attempted those horrible things. And, you know, I look back on it now and even a year ago and I was thinking, okay, I was 17 years old, sophomore in high school, the first time I tried to take my life. And I think back and, and, and remember and think about all of the things that I would have missed. You know, I never would have graduated high school. I never would have gone to college. You know, I never would have, you know, done all of the things that I have done. And it's just, you know, it makes me sad because it's like, I can't believe I lived that many years of my life so completely unhappy that that was the only thing that I thought would make it all better was just to go away and to never come back. And I know you understand that probably more than I do, you know, because you've lived it in different parts of your own life. And, you know, I'm not going to put those words out there because it's not my story to tell, but you know, it, you, you know, both sides of it. I do, but I only know my side of it, right? Like that's, that's Absolutely. the, that's the interesting thing about, about all of, all of this. It's the interesting thing about suicide is that it's the result, right? It's, it's not the problem. Uh, and so I, when I look at myself, I understand suicide from my problems and the problems that I saw in my father, the, the problems that I saw not necessarily from my, my, my father's mouth, but from other people telling me about my father's problems. And so what I, what I think I've come to understand in, in working with people who struggle with suicide, because that's honestly one of the biggest things I deal with, um, the common denominator is always disconnection, right? There's, there's at some point in our lives, we find that the people that are supposed to support us don't uh or we we believe so fervently in our hearts that we can't allow those people to support us and so we create disconnection sometimes it's both um uh sometimes the it feels like the entire world is disconnected from who we are that's i would i would imagine that your you know your discussion on normal uh, it fits this really well in terms of, you know, you were disabled in a, uh, at a time in your life where, where children are incredibly honest and unfortunately, so were the adults in some cases. And you dealt with this concept of disconnection, uh, quite early and quite, uh, abruptly realizing that you were, uh, you were different right? And, and what people don't really 
certainly didn't recognize before, you know, the past 10, 15 years of uh, social media, where we started to have this conversation was that what's normal for you is normal is, is, is chaos for other people. And what's chaos for other people is normal for you. You know, it's the, the fly in the spider uh, proverb and kind of looking at how we actually define normal is slowly changing and transforming. And we're, I think, becoming more accepting, but at the same time, people still struggle with this concept of what is normal and how do we actually reconnect with people that have been so thoroughly disconnected from society, from their families, from their friends, from their colleagues, their peers, their coworkers, you know, in all fashions and forms of life, we find people approximately 800,000 a year throughout the world that would rather choose to end their life than reconnect with people. And, you know, that's, it's not a, it's not a me issue. It's not a you issue. It's everyone. We have a problem that, you know, if 800,000 people are choosing to end their life, like why? Right. And, and we dig into disconnection and we understand the, the real problems of disconnection. What are we doing that are, that is disconnecting? You know, is it racism? Is it sexism? Is it, is it trauma? Is it, uh, bad parenting, you know, like we need to dig into those questions and ask, you know, and I think one of the reasons I, I wanted to do this podcast and connect with people is to dig into those problems and, and find a commonality. What are those problems? And, and how do we, how do we start to have a conversation about what is real? Like what is really the problem rather than looking at suicide as the problem and, completely being blind to everything that creates the result of suicide. So, I, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, coming from my perspective as the one who has been the one who's been on the side of the, the suicide of attempting to, to end my life, attempting to end my story, and then meeting you and seeing the other side of it as someone who's been left behind, you know, at a, a extremely young age. And so it's given me the ability to see both sides of it. You know, it's not a selfish act, in my opinion. And, you know, you taught me that because people are like, my God, it's the most selfish thing that anybody could ever do because they're leaving behind all of these people and they, they don't even think about all of us. But you gave me, you know, you, you taught me that whole nother perspective of, you know, we don't want those around us to have to deal with the stuff that we're dealing with and be honest and open with them. And I think that's where I started at 11 years old, because when I was 10, I was molested by a, by a female at camp every single day for an entire week. And I would come home crying every single night, begging my parents not to send me back at, you know, 10, 9, 10 years old but not telling them why, not telling them what was going on behind closed doors because she put the fear of God in me. She threatened my life. She threatened my family's life. And, you know, I was nine, 10, 11 years old and you don't, you don't know how to deal with that stuff. You know, being told that you're, you're worthless and that you're nothing and that you just, all you deserve in the world is to be hurt and to be abused. 
And, you know, I mean, and I've literally had to fight to survive since the day I was born. You know, I spent days in, in the hospital after I was born and, you know, subsequent stays throughout my childhood. And so it's like being told that you're nothing and that you're never going to amount to anything your entire life. You have to flip the switch in your own head and be like, no, that's a bunch of BS. I'm still here for a reason. I may not know what it is, but there is a reason that I'm still here. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I look back on all of that stuff and being molested and keeping that secret for over 20 years and just realizing, you know, and not really even remembering a lot of my own childhood except through pictures, you know, oh, I can remember this vacation or I can remember this party or whatever, but only through pictures. I don't have those memories in my head because I blocked out my entire childhood because of all of this stuff. And, um, you know, unfortunately, <clears throat> excuse me, awful things happened to me when I was in college. I was, you know, I was raped at a, at a frat party and told by campus police that I deserved it because A, I'd been drinking and B, I was disabled. So there again, being disabled, I deserve to be brutally raped. Um, you know, I was 21 years old, you know, right out of, right out of, you know, away from home for the very first time. And, and on my own and not really knowing what was going on in my own head and dealing with the childhood stuff and this all at once and just having to face my family at graduation. And it can literally destroy a person mentally and, you know, physically. And, um, you know, not telling anybody that for over a decade. I think it's important to, to note that these experiences that you've been through have a lot of confirmation in them, right? Of, of what was taught to you or what was, you know, in, in retrospect kind of where you were forced to train yourself to understand your position in whatever hierarchy of your family or, you know, your place in the world. Um, that these, these moments of being sexually abused were, or situations in which they confirmed this uh, worthlessness because you couldn't defend yourself against these things. You couldn't talk about these things and you couldn't process them, certainly, uh, because you couldn't talk about them, right? And you couldn't expose them for what they were. Um, and, and there's- You're used to being taken care of by your parents, doctors, yeah. nurses in the hospital, you know, having all of this stuff done to you and literally having no choice, you know, because it's either, you know, live or die. And it's like, so that's how I've had to just, you know, you trust your elders, you trust the adults, you, you know, do what you're told, you, whatever. Even as an adult, I was like, okay, this person's in control. Yeah. And that creates, that's, that's the interesting thing about um, things like domestic violence and things like sexual trauma is that you know, people, people ask the question, you know, it, and this is a little bit out of, outside of the context of your situation, but I think it's really important to understand yeah. um, because it also applies to you. It applies to many people is that when you go through things like this at a young age and they confirm within you that you are in fact worthless in your, to yourself mm -hmm. um, and you, you maintain this, this 
this idea of silence is better for you. Um, safer. It's safer. And, and when you consider like getting into a domestic violence situation where, where someone is in fact abusive, uh, maybe even sexually abusive, um, it, it, people ask, why don't, why don't you leave? Cause it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. And to, I've lived through that as well in right, my early twenties to, to break that kind of conditioning, um, not only self conditioning, but conditioning from the other person, you know, and, and, and to really dive into that, there's, there's a, there's certainly a lack of self-respect, um, and not, I, I, you can, if you blame the person, right. That I think that's just the wrong way to go about it. You know, that's certainly, and that's one of the things that I see online, you know, when, when we talk about these kinds of things, is that almost always in the comments when we're having a conversation about sexual trauma or domestic violence or, you know, why, why are you staying? Um, there's, there's a discussion about self-respect and lack of it. And then they it's blamed on the person and victim blaming is huge. And, and what's, what's, what's crazy is in many ways, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a dynamic range of understanding here where yes, there is, there is a reality in place in which this was created by this person. The situation was created by this person, but there's also a very deep and dark uh, kind of uh, many forces that also imparted these, these difficult, and uncontrollable messages on this on this person that had to face a, a decision in their lives at a at an age where they didn't understand. Typically, at an age, uh, they didn't understand how to make those decisions, and then they have to live with them. Um, and so, this 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 idea of victim blaming is so detrimental to the process, and it's it's something that. Um, it's hard to explain to people because there is a reality there, right? Mm -hmm. The situation is created by the person, but in many ways, it's almost uncontrollable. It's almost unconscious. And so when you look at blame, when you look at the person, right? If we were to look at you and say, you are to blame, the first thing you're going to be like is, I didn't choose to hurt me, right? I chose to fall in love with this person that then hurt me, that then did not, uh, you know, uh, respect my boundaries, that did not this, that did not this, right, mm -hmm. that did, couldn't control themselves, right? And the reality is, is that the only thing you have control of is, is the choices to step into a relationship like that, to read the boundaries uh, that they were willing to push before they happen. And so in many ways, like, the reality is, you were taught something, right? You were shown something is more often the case, right? We, you, are, you are taken at an age, you know, and taught by people, whether it's, uh, whether it's parents, whether it's teachers, whether it's grandparents, uh, you are taught to understand your self-worth and your self-respect. And if there's, if there's anyone to blame at a certain age, I would, I would say it's between one and 10 years old, 
for how how well your self-respect is is really developed it's those adults in your life that that offer you the form of self-respect and and foster that care within you um to determine you're frozen at the moment just oh there you are you're back oh you're good um uh to to foster those ideas of of self-respect and and care for yourself uh and to question those boundaries and to question you know your own negative thinking and if that wasn't given to you how can you blame yourself right how can people blame you for these actions um you know and and there's such a deep lack of accountability in in the actions of you know uh sexual predators of people like pedophiles uh there, there's such a lack of accountability in in terms of these crimes um and it's and people something... even think they're like oh well how could you have as a little girl been molested by a woman because she's you know an evil person and because you, you said know, no just just like you know, a little boy could be molested by a, by a man or, you know, whatever. It's just because you said no, or didn't want it. And she didn't stop. It's simple, right? Like when, when someone touches you in an inappropriate place in in any way, it's not even whether you didn't want it or not, right? Mm -hmm. If you are below the age of 18 and you are being touched by someone that is above the age of 18, Mm -hmm. right? there's there's a lack of of understanding what consent is right obviously there's romeo and juliet stuff laws and, and consent kind of starts in at 16 17 18 depending on the state and, and laws but a 10 year old does not know how to consent right yeah. a 10 year old does not know or understand what it means to consent so i don't care if they like it or if they don't it's it's inappropriate and it's rape if it's done by someone above the age of 18 it's simple right like like the rules are quite clear uh, Mm -hmm. or at least i think they're quite clear and maybe they're not i agree with you i mean but it's you know it's it's something that needs to be addressed it needs to be discussed more it needs to be uh pushed more into the the legal um into legal ramifications for for things like pedophilia things like rape sexual assault, all of these things. These are, these are not things to be taken lightly. And they have been in the, in the history of the United States and many other countries. Absolutely. And because, you know, and I'm not blaming myself, you know, I don't anymore, but, you know, obviously I didn't say anything when I was, when I was 10 years old. So who knows if this happened again, you know, I'm, I'm sure it did, you know, and for a really long time, I blamed myself, you know, once my story came out, I blamed myself for anybody that was hurt after me by this person or it's hard not to. Absolutely. And when I was in college, you know, I didn't, I didn't say anything because, you know, I was told that I deserved it. You know, I was, I was unconscious. I was literally, I didn't know anything had happened until I woke up the next morning and didn't have any clothes on, you know, in this completely empty house. And so to say that I deserved whatever happened because I was drinking and disabled, I was unconscious. And maybe somebody will argue with me later when they watch this, but I don't care. I was unconscious. I did not consent. Yeah, I don't, you know, if anybody and, argues with you, they can fuck right off from this, this podcast. Absolutely. Go I watch, agree. Go watch something else. Yeah. This is not what you want to watch. If you do not want to agree with me or even listen to what I'm saying, because 
You're not welcome. You know, and I, I kept those <laughs> secrets. And unfortunately, you know, I, you know, I got into a situation or didn't even get into a situation. I don't know what you want to call it. You know, almost 12 years ago, 11 and a half years ago in this actual apartment, you know, I was, I was brutally raped. And, you know, again, I said, no, I tried to get away. You know, I, at that point, I still was able to, to walk fairly well with both crutches, you know, 11, 12 years ago. And I still try to get, I would live on the 11th floor of a 14 story high rise building, obviously with elevators, but I still can't run. I will never be able to run. And I couldn't get away. So I froze, you know, and I just was like, you know, I went to myself and I was like, you know what, this is going to happen whether I want it to or not at this point. So we just have to figure out a way to survive. And it was awful because I was completely sober. I was completely conscious. I was, I knew absolutely everything that this man was doing to me. And Dylan, I looked him in the eye one, at one point dead in the eye as I am looking at you right now. And I said, why are you doing this to me? And he looked at me stone-faced and literally said, because I can. And I will never forget that face for as long as I live. And yes, it eventually stopped. He eventually left, you know, and I, you know, I went and I, I did the report. I did the rape kit. I did absolutely everything you're supposed to do by the book and by the law. And absolutely nothing was done. I don't even think they talked to him. I don't know if they, they sent him a, one, a copy of the protective order. And I will live with that for the rest of my fucking life. And yes, people think I'm crazy to still live in this apartment. But I realized, you know what? And I, I learned, I, I thought, I figured this out a long time ago. I was like, yes, he got away with, with raping me. He, he got away with, he walked away. I'm not going to leave my home. I'm not going to change my life completely. And this is my opinion. These are my thoughts on the situation. Everybody's different. I'm not going to uproot my entire life. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to leave because if I do, he still has that control because I'm running away. And th these are my thoughts, these are my feelings, my opinions, you know, and you can agree or disagree with me. But, and it took me a really long time to come to that because, you know, I am still here. I am still sleeping in the same bed every single night. And it was really hard in the beginning, you know, every single night waking up screaming, knowing that nobody was here, but in my head, he was here. He was at the foot of my bed every single night for months, you know, and the only way that I could get that stuff to go away. And I hate admitting it, but it was my truth was alcohol every single night for at least six months. I would sit in my apartment by myself in complete darkness, drinking until I literally passed out because that was the only way that I could close my eyes and not relive it. And, you know, and then I would say, okay, we're gonna add the alcohol, but we don't wanna be alive anymore. So we're gonna either, you know, take a bunch of pills, which the only pills I had in my apartment at that point were 
antidepressants, anti-anxiety, anti, you know, whatever. And I would just take those with the alcohol and just pray that I wouldn't wake up in the morning. Um, and it's just, it's the most gut-wrenching feeling knowing that he's walking around somewhere. It's, it's, it's like I, I didn't do enough to, to help to hold him accountable, even though I did everything in my power, you know, absolutely everything. And when I told my parents, it took me two months to talk to my parents about it. And I did it in my therapist's office. My mother, God love her. My mother looked me in the eye. She's my mother. She gave birth to me. I have, I have proof. She is my mother. Looked me in the eye and said, why didn't you try to run away? 11th floor, 14-story building. Can't run. Two crutches. Can't walk without braces. Um, in your home. In my home. In my home that he broke into. Because you know what, Mom? I did what I had to do to stay alive. Or you wouldn't have a fucking daughter right now or at least not this daughter, you know, I mean, I literally did. And, and she re kept repeating it. And I kept looking at my therapist and I was like, just say something. And, you know, my dad didn't say anything. And still to this day, my dad was my best friend for the first 30 years of my life. We would do everything together and he's never looked at me the same. And it breaks my heart because I didn't have anybody else. Um, and you know what? And for six months, Every single time I would see my mom, she would be like, well, why didn't you try to scream? Why didn't you try to run? Why didn't you call the police right away? Why didn't you, you know, try to get to a neighbor? I'm like, you know what, mom? Every time I tried to get up, he would grab me. No matter if I was twice his size or whatever, it didn't matter. I did what I had to stay alive so you would still have a child. And if that's not good enough for you, I don't know what else to do, you know? And I've lived with that for almost 12 years. And it's like, and I know nothing that I ever do is going to make my parents happy. And I realize that, and I'm okay with that at this point. It took me over 40 years, but it's like, you know what? Fuck it. If I'm not good enough, walk out of my life. I don't, I don't need you to tell me all of the horrible, bad choices and bad decisions that I've made in my life. And she even looked at my therapist that day and she's like, well, how can we help Katie make better decisions when it comes to men? And I just, I mean, I looked at her and at that point I was 32 and I was just like, I, I couldn't say anything. I was, I was literally sitting there like just about to cry. And it's like, you know, my grandmother had just died. You know, I had just been raped and nobody knew about it um, yeah. except for, you know, the authorities, which they didn't give a shit, obviously. Right. Um, and I'm just like, and when she kept pounding me, finally, I was like, you know, I came home one night and I was sitting here and it was, it was bad. And I was sitting on the floor with a bottle of pills, bottle of booze, and the biggest knife I had in my apartment at the time. 
And I was like, if my own mother isn't okay with the fact that I did what I had to do to stay alive, if she isn't so fucking proud of me for being here today, then nobody's ever going to be. And that, that was probably one of the darkest nights that I had in a really long time. And I was just like, obviously I'm still here, but you know, and that would go on for years. My last, my last suicide attempt was 2015 and, you know, I was 36 or 37 at the time. And it's like, you know, finally I had to be like, you know what? Obviously I'm supposed to be here for a reason. I didn't know what it was. I don't know what it is, but I'm obviously supposed to be here. And it's just, I finally had to say, you know what? If nobody else is going to support me, if nobody else is going to be there for me, I'm going to have to be there for myself. And it wasn't until I met you two years ago that I realized that at, you know, 42 years old, I was like, oh, or 41 years old, whatever it was. It's like, oh, I guess I have to be there for myself. And if nobody else is going to be. Sorry, that was a long-winded kind of, I'm just trying to keep it. <laughs> no, you're good. I, I think all of it, all of it is important. And when you can, you know, when you can verbalize things like that, right? When you can express those things, does it always fix them? No, I, you know, I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily true. It's not necessarily the things we can verbalize that are the things we need to process. Um, but when we can verbalize things, it gives us, I think, the authority to start having the discussion within ourselves, right? We can actually put words to feelings and words will never be able to accompany the feelings and, and carry forth what it actually means to go through those experiences, but that's, it's a damn good start. Mm -hmm. And, and so when you can, I think that's why talk therapy has existed for as long as it has, right? Is that there is a piece of us that we don't need to just take the feelings and of trauma and what we've gone through and throw them away, get rid of them, because that doesn't negate the fact that we make decisions every day. We have values that we have a foundation of who we are. And that's what I think talk therapy, that's what I think discussing these things are. That's what I think verbalizing traumas and, and having these discussions and digging into who you are is so foundational is because we're not trying to address the choices you have made. We're trying to address the choices you are going to make, right? And you don't want to live the next 60 years of your life because you might live for 60 years. You might live to be 103, 105. I don't know. But if you do, I bet you don't want to be feeling like you want to commit suicide every day, right? I bet you don't want to be feeling like you have to. I don't want anybody to ever feel like that because it's right. awful. And, and where that, where that self-respect, where that emotional regulation begins is being able to allow yourself to speak, allow yourself to fight for yourself. In many ways, you know, you, you look at this situation in which, you know, I, I really want to address something here. Like there are evil people 
in this world. And if you haven't figured it out by now, by, by listening to this podcast or looking at the current events of the world today, there are people that will make you out to be the bad guy. That's the remarkable thing about this situation, right? Whether it's strangers or your own family. I mean, I, I mean, it's incredible that, that that can be said to you, right? A man can control you like that and say, you know, you say, why are you doing this? And he can say, because I can. And somehow you are the bad guy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, for, for the life of me, I will never understand that. How people do not understand that that is evil, right? That is bad. That needs to be punished. That needs to be, there needs to be a dark place in hell for that man to sit in for the rest of his, his time here on earth or the rest of his eternity, because making a choice like that is fundamentally wrong. Absolutely. And the really shitty part about it, Dylan, and i sorry to interrupt, was when I was at the, you know, the police station, you know, bringing in the evidence, bring, you know, the, the sheets, whatever it was, he already had a mugshot and three warrants for his arrest. Now they weren't for, you know, sexual assault and rape, but he was already in the system but yet there wasn't enough circumstantial evidence in my situation to prosecute. And I will never forget that mugshot for as long as I live, because that is the face that I saw for the two and a half hours that this man was raping me in my apartment for as long as I live. And it just blows my freaking mind. It's like, it's right here in black and white. This is an evil person. And yet, yeah, it may just be a warrant for public intox or, you know, whatever. He's raped me. He's brutally raped me. And that's not enough. It's not bad enough to say, oh, okay, maybe we need to look at this person and have a conversation. But yet I'm out to be the bad guy. I'm looked at as, well, you made the choice to, you know, talk to this person or, you know, made the choice to associate yourself because we were coworkers. And I'm like, yeah, I might've made the, the choice to talk to him every single day at work, but I didn't make the choice for him to break into my apartment and rape me. It did not make that choice. Or to even have the capacity to know that he would do something like that, right? Absolutely. You're not a fucking mind reader. You you, you can't, you know, you're not a fucking mind reader. You're not, you're not allowed to know what other people are thinking about doing before they do it. If we, if we had that capacity, like we'd have what minority report, right? That would be a real thing. And we'd be stopping people from doing crimes before they, before they started. But this man made a choice without your knowledge. He had the capacity to do this without your knowledge. And he made a fucking choice and it was wrong and he should be, he should be punished for it. Um, and, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fucking aggravating, you know, and, and certainly this was, this was what, 10 years ago. It'll be 12 years in November, 2010. Years. It's, it, it's still happening. Right. You know, it like is. we, we look at, we look at, the advancement of society. And yet this is still happening. Right. I, I 
can't remember what it was, but I, I saw a couple stories, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago where uh, someone sexually, a, a man sexually assaulted uh, someone, I think in, I think it was a college um, and the judge, the judge released him with no, no punishment because, because he could, right? Like it's fundamentally wrong. Like that, like when it gets to that level of he was guilty, he was found guilty and the punishment that was supposed to be obtained for this crime was dismissed by a judge. It's still happening and it's still it is. fucked up. It is still fucked up. And there used to be something here locally in Fort Wayne. It was called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. And it was put on by our local sexual assault treatment center where men, mostly men, would don, you know, bright red shoes, whether they're high heels or whatever, and walk an entire mile for, you know, awareness. And I remember, and I would go and I would volunteer every year. And I remember one year as they were doing this mile walk, not even a mile away in a park, a 90 year old woman was brutally raped by some man. And it's just, and thankfully she survived, but it's just like, you know, and it's happened to me three fucking times. I was, I was 10, 10 years old, it's all three times. And it's just like, you know, and, and I know, and this sounds bad, but I understand it now. I didn't at the time. I am what's considered an easy target because I am disabled, because I am considered, you know, an easy target. You know, it's, it's more likely to happen to me than it is to happen to let's just say, you know, Val or whoever it is, because I am considered an easy target. And it's like, but it still shouldn't happen. Yeah. It really still, and it pisses me off yeah. because, you know, I mean, I look at my, I have two younger sisters and I never talked to Liz about it just because she and I don't really have a great relationship. But I remember when Sam, my youngest sister, who I think she's about a year younger than you are, went away to college. Um, I wrote her a letter and told her exactly what had happened to me when I was in college. And at that point, my parents didn't know because I hadn't, my story hadn't come out at that point. But I was sitting there and I'm thinking, like, I'm 20 some years old. I shouldn't be telling my 17, 18 year old little sister to be thinking about being raped at a, at a fraternity party or anywhere for that matter. I shouldn't have to do that. You know, and I look at her now and she's, you know, she's a new mom. She's, you know, my nephew's almost three weeks old and it's just, it's amazing. And it's thinking, you know, I will never have that. And I'm okay with that at this point. You know, I will never be a mom. I will never be a, you know, more than likely won't be a wife. And I'm okay with that. But it's just the fact that I've had to deal with so much sexual trauma in my life. I don't know what a healthy relationship is with a man. And as much as I've tried over the last almost 12 years to have that, I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to do. And it's just, it's aggravating because I've had to deal with this stuff since I was fucking 10 years old, thinking that it's okay to hurt people. Yeah. And I'm trying not to get angry, but it's just like, it pisses me off. I, that I we have know. to teach our kids this. I don't know why you wouldn't get angry. I, you know, that's, 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 what's always funny is that like, 
when I, when I work with people, right. Mm-hmm. People, especially when they have been through uh, sexual trauma, my initial understanding of them is remarkably compassionate people, remarkably kind people. You know, what word doesn't come to mind? Angry. They don't show it. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a problem. Right. I, I think you should be angry. You should be upset. You should be mad for, for having had to been forced to go through those, you know, those situations, not only that, but especially with yours and so many other people that go through this, the, the complete lack of legal support, the complete uh, dropping the ball of, of sexual crimes, right? These, these predators get away with, you know, conducting violence on people. And there's the, that's the very nature of why we have laws is to stop bad people from doing bad things. And clearly the, the punishment does not fit the crimes, right? This, this is a historic thing that is that the punishment of things like sexual assault do not fit the crimes. It is not enough. It's clearly not enough. And when, until we start to recognize that until we start to change that stuff. Right. And I, I certainly I'm, I'm, I might be getting close to that line of talking outside my boundaries of, of what I know. Um, because I certainly don't know the legal system, but I certainly watch and, and listen to enough stories to understand that it's not going the right way. Um, but I, I, I'll, I'll digress a little bit and remind everyone that do the research yourself, understand yourself, what, where the failings are in the legal system and, and why these people get away with these things. I, 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 I dare you challenge you, right? Get mad, get upset, say something. I have, and it's absolutely disgusting. It's, you know, I've done the research. I've looked it up. I've read the books, you know, and it's just, it's our system our judicial system, our system is not set up for, and I hate using the word victim because I've never seen myself as a victim, but that's how it's portrayed. It's not set up for the victim. It's set up for the perpetrator. And, you know, it's like, I mean, I could have very easily after I was hurt at at 10 years old, 10, 11 years old, been like, okay, I'm going to go home to my parents' house. I'm going to go to my bedroom. And I'm going to kill myself, you know, and I wouldn't have lived this entire story. And I look back on that now, you know, over the last couple of years, it's like of telling my story, you know, on a regular basis of, of people on TikTok, you know, sending me the messages of, you know, because of your story, because of your bravery of speaking up, you know, I'm not going to go home and kill myself tonight because my kids need me. My husband needs me, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, whatever it is. And it's, you know, it's like, okay. Or, you know, talking about being raped or molested or whatever it is, you know, having a 18, 19 year old girl message me and be like, because of you, I'm going to tell my story. You know, I'm not going to stay silent anymore because I know what it can do to a person. I have a question. Sure. Do you have, do you have a copy of the police report? That is a good question. I don't know if I still do. I'm curious. Um, I have to look. I, you know, I would, I would be curious, right? Like how, 
one, obviously, I don't know how the the department handled the the crime itself, but I'm re- I would be really curious to see if you still have the police report, if they still have the report, right? Because mm-hmm. I think 12 years is probably still in the realm of they keep those records. Yeah, um, I'd have to look it up or look and see. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious. Or if what, there even was a police report, you know, created because they didn't do anything, you know, I mean, they right. said basically it's he said, she said, and it's your word against his. So we don't even technically have to talk to him. You know, and then those are the words out of, you know, whether it was the the, the police detective or my um, victim advocate. I, I heard from that woman. I met her the day that I was raped when I went in for everything. And I heard from her once, Dylan. She called me once when I, or I called her asking if she'd heard anything, like maybe two or three weeks later. And she's she completely blew me off. And I'm thinking... This is why people don't speak up. This is why women and men don't talk because this is what happens, you know, and I, and I've talked to women, you know, for the last, you know, 12 years and some of them have gotten justice. Some of them have had advocates that are with them every single step of the way. Unfortunately, the ball was dropped in my situation and I had to deal with it on my own and I didn't deal with it well. You know, I was very self-destructive. So I'm, I'm really glad that there are people out there that actually do give a shit and are helping some women and men. Um, but it's just, it's, we need to do better. And even when it comes to suicide, you know, men and suicide or men and anything, we as a society need to be okay. If any man walks up to me or anybody comes to me and says, I want to kill myself, I need to talk. I will do everything in my power to listen to that person, you know, listen to that man and give him the compassion that he deserves because I've seen too many videos of men saying, well, there's nobody ever there for me. And as a woman who has felt the same way her entire life until I met you, not having anybody to listen because I was always told that emotions were bad and we don't talk about our problems and we just keep it to ourselves. I, I understand to a point why people, men and women, don't talk. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people that say they'll be there and that say that they will listen and you reach out. And I can't tell you how many messages I've left for people that said, oh my God, I will literally drop anything, anytime, day or night. All you have to do is DM me. Yeah. Don't say you know? that. You, you can't. You can't be that. I, and I, you know, I, I work with, I work with influencers, right. Uh, uh, oftentimes and, and help people uh, kind of grow their, their TikTok and their Instagram and other, other things, but you can't be that person. Right. I think I try and do my best to help people understand that mm-hmm. I'm going to get back to you when I can get back to you. Right. I yeah, have, and I know you always will. It could take a while, but I know that you will when you can. Yeah. I mean, I, well, it's even, even before I became an influencer, I was, I was focused on helping people understand my boundaries of, mm-hmm. you know, I will get back to you again. It might be a while because I have other things going on. I might be doing drill. I might be 
just literally so busy that I forget to see your message. And then periodically I'll go through and recall it. But now I get, I get 50 to a hundred texts, DMS, uh, emails a day. And I'm constantly trying to manage all of that. I'm a one man show over here trying to do everything. And if, if you know, you know, like there, there needs to be some kind of boundary for you to say to people that you can DM me, but I will get back to it when I can. And I can't always be the person. Like, I think people just need to be more honest. It's like, no, and one I've started doing that. I'm like, and it's like, I will be there for you. I just not might not be in that exact moment that you need me, Yeah, but I will get back to you. Cause it, it creates, you know, when you tell people I'll be there for you anytime you need, um, it creates this, it creates expectation and expectation is, is the bane of, uh, of suicidal people, right? Like I, if, if you told me that you were going to be here and you, and you weren't here, so guess what? It, it just creates the confirmation within the expectation and you can't do that. Don't do that to people. You know what you can do? You can help show them that they are responsible for their own lives, but that comes with a responsibility within your own understanding that comes with ownership of the reality that they may not make it, that you cannot save someone that has been destroyed for 37 years of their life or 12 years of their life or 45 years of their life, right? You cannot be the one that makes all of that go away. The only person that can do that is them, right? Like I, you, you I, actually taught me that. Exactly. It's, you did, you know, and it's, it's, you a, can't save everybody. It's a fucking it's a harsh hard reality. Thing. It's a fucking hard thing to come it up against. It's a fucking hard thing. But you, you realize it when you look at your own story and realize nobody saved me, right? Nobody came running to save me. I did. I had to, because if I didn't, I would be dead. And, yeah. It, it, it has to be understood that you have to do it yourself, right? And that's, you know, it's not about victim blaming or anything like that. It's not about blaming yourself. It's literally about self-correction. It's not about blaming. It's about self-correction. It's when you recognize that you have an issue and then you recognize that you have to resolve that issue. You have to, you know, I, I think there's a triad of things that people really need to focus on. Self-correction self-appreciation and conflict resolution. When you can master that triad, that triangle of, of human interaction mm-hmm. within the self, it is, it is a remarkable transformation. Because when you have the ability to look at yourself and say, I'm going to balance self-appreciation, I'm going to say, I do love myself, but I don't love myself so much at the expense of other people. Right. And so there's a balance there and I'm going to self-correct, but I'm not going to overcorrect for other people. I'm going to hold the boundaries and hold the space of understanding I need to change. And that might mean other people are going to be offended. They're going to be hurt. They're not going to be happy because they've been using me, abusing me and hurting me for their own use, for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. And I need to do that for myself. I need to correct behaviors that have hurt me in the past that have led me down roads where I was hurt. I was abused, whatever. And then that leads to ultimately when you connect with those two self-correction and self-appreciation, when you connect that with 
conflict resolution because you're going to have to conflict resolution. You're, you're going to have to resolve conflicts when you face boundaries because people don't give a shit about your boundaries and they're going to push them. And you have to step up and say, I'm holding this space respectfully. Mm-hmm. I want to hold this. And when they push that boundary, that's when the disrespect comes and you disrespect them because what their version of disrespect is and your version of disrespect is are very different clearly because they're willing to disrespect your boundaries. But your, you know, if, if your mentality is to, I can't disrespect this person, you know, they haven't, you know, breaking a boundary is not disrespectful to me. Mm-hmm. Clearly you need to change that because when they, when they disrespect you, when you've set a clear precedence of this is my boundary, that's mm-hmm. disrespect. And when you, when you remind them over and over and over again, because the first time I understand in some ways, right? I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. You push my boundaries, right? My clear present boundaries that I reiterate to you over and over and over and over again, I'm remarkably clear about these things. When you do that the first time, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to remind you, Hey, this is, I'm not comfortable with this, right? You do it more we're done, right? I don't have time for you. Like I have 570,000 people following me and and vying for my attention and my, my trying to get a comment to me so I can answer that question, sending me a DM so I can answer their question and respond to them and help them and and support them. I don't have fucking time for people that push my boundaries and, and try to take from me more than I'm willing to give. And I don't know how you do it all. Honestly, I don't. I mean, values i am so set and can i continue i continue to confirm the the importance of my values in every single way i do i struggle yes absolutely i there are days where i'm i come out of meetings and i am exhausted absolutely because it's it's a passionate thing about me right but i have to respect the values of empathy and, and, and when I say empathy, it's not a, I am outright empathetic to everything. There's boundaries, right? And this is, this is a, you know, this is later on in, in probably later this year, I'm going to be creating a, a boundaries exercise that I'm going to be, it's, I'm going to be selling it as a product because this is fundamentally something that is so powerful and profound that I've understood is that when you set clear and present boundaries of this is my line, right? If I am too empathetic, I get abused. And now here is my boundary, right? I will help you until you, you continue to push this boundary. And then I am sorry. It is your responsibility to help yourself. It always has been. I was willing to support you, but you, you broke this boundary and this is your choice, not mine. And I am never too unempathetic, right? Until you break the boundaries. And then I have to be unempathetic Mm -hmm. and my values determine whether or not I'm acting right or wrong, right? My integrity, how I do it. I set the precedence. I I have the principles that tell me this is the right decision for me. And I've always had the ability to learn whether I'm, whether this decision was right or wrong. If it's a gray area, I analyze that's where I overthink and I allow myself to, because I have to. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah. I'm in, I'm in some tough, I'm in some tough areas. 
right? I have tough conversations and I have to determine whether I'm right or wrong every single day. And if you're not doing that, you're not understanding how to develop values. You're not understanding how to develop principles and allow yourself to one, push your own limits in, in the right places and pull yourself back, pull the reins on yourself from pushing your limits in the wrong areas, you know, and, and how I, how I do it is I have a purpose. I have a plan, right? Like I have a roadmap of where I'm actually going. Do I, do I get off track? Absolutely. But guess what? My values remind me how to follow the right path. I get too far off. I recognize it. I think about what I'm doing. I'm self-aware and I say, hold on a second, right? This happened to me a couple of days ago. My, I, like, I could feel the stress in my face, right? My forehead gathers all sorts of stress and I was feeling it. Val recognized it. Avery recognized it. Everybody recognized it. And I was like the only one, I was the last one to recognize it. I'm like, I'm like Val, I'm stressed. And she looks at me and she's like, tell me something you, I don't know, motherfucker, right? Like basically there's that look of like, I love yeah, that woman, right? Like she didn't say it that way, but it was definitely well, the look that she, she was thinking, <laughs> you know, and, and when I have the ability to tell myself that and tell other people, that's where I struggle is opening up and sharing with people of like mm -hmm. close to me like this, I'm struggling, right? When I have the ability to share that with her, that's when I know I can solve my problem. Yeah. And I took time, right? You know, Val, Val helps me out with that. Uh, you know, she, she looks at my schedule sometimes and it's just like, she puts in family time, you know, and, and nobody can schedule then. And that's a boundary, right? She helps me with that boundary. There's, I have weaknesses, right? If people don't think I don't have weaknesses, I do, right? My weakness is I work too much, right? Yeah. And, and, and Val looks at me and sometimes and is like, I'm going to schedule you some time off. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with you because I need that, even though I don't want it right now. Cause I feel like yeah. I have a lot to do. Right. Yep. I'm like hesitantly like, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Okay. your teeth and yeah. biting your tongue. And it's, you know, it's, it's just a, if you want to know how to really develop yourself after going through trauma. Self-awareness is the beginning and it is the end and everything totally. in between there, you know, mm -hmm. everything in between self-awareness and self-awareness is so deep, right? It's the, it's the Mariana's trench of, of you, right? You are digging into the past. You are digging into the future. You are digging into the present. And you are trying to put it all together and you are not going to get it right. You are going to fuck it up. Right. And if you're out there listening to this and thinking like it, you know, it's not even worth trying because I'll just fuck it up. Good. That's the point. You fuck it up so many times. You actually start to realize what is successful and what's not for you. Right. Yeah. And I was, I was 32 years old when I opened up about my entire story in therapy and so I was dealing with 32 years worth of shit all at the same fucking time. Yeah. And let me tell you, talking about one suicide attempt or one sexual trauma at a time, 
is absolutely horrible. I was talking about three of them and at least 15 suicide attempts at one time. And so it was probably one of the hardest things that I ever did, but it was one of the best things that I ever did. People are like, well, you know, if, if, if your story is, you know, if it's so hard to talk about all of the traumas and all of the, the shit and all of the bad stuff that happened, why even do it? And I've gotten this question more times than I can tell you. And I'm like, you know what? Because if I didn't finally open up about all of this shit at 32 years old, I wouldn't be talking to Dylan at 43 years old about all of this stuff and how far I've come. So yeah, it's horrible and it sucks and it's awful. And you know, it's crying and it's anxiety and depression and PTSD and you know, all of this stuff. But I'm sitting here talking to you today, almost one year off of all medications. It'll be one year that I've stopped taking everything at the end of this month. And I never, I started taking stuff when I was in seventh grade, you know? And so that's all of those years on some sort of mood altering medication and sometimes six at a time. And so I'm finally figuring out and I've spent the last year figuring out who I am and how to deal with this shit without altering it, you know, my mind and my psyche. Yeah. And it sucks. Let me tell you, but I'm really proud of myself. That, that question is, is, is powerful, right? Like, cause people ask that question for a reason of, you know, if, if all of this is so hard, why even try? And the reality is, is it's, it's called layered progression, layered progression, very simple. It is, there is, there is, think about it like the earth's crust. There is a massive layer of really hard rock that you have to break through, right? You have to break through or, or think about it like ice, right? On a lake, you have to break through that ice to actually get down into the place where you can start pulling out fish to feed yourself, right? Mm-hmm. To get to the water that you can actually drink to, to nourish yourself, it's like if you can't break through that ice, you cannot see the value. If you cannot break through the hard crust of, of what trauma teaches you, you, you can't start to understand how to nourish yourself, how to develop an understanding of your needs, of your, of your wants, of your desires again. Mm-hmm. And the, the reality is, is if you can't get past that question, you're going to struggle. You will always struggle. If you want to know why it's, if it's so hard, why even do it? Well, the the real question is more like, do you want to struggle for the next 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years? If you're fucking 10 years old and you ask that question, guess what? You've got 90 years ahead of you potentially, or you could be taking off 30 to 40 to 50 years of your life because of how much you're allowing the struggle to take over your body, right? Yeah. Things like things like fibromyalgia, things like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, ALS, like Lou, Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's. Some of these things are being linked to trauma, to co- chronic stress and chronic pain 
there's there's a lot of research going into this understanding of of trauma, of pain, mm-hmm. right? You want to get through it? Do you want to live longer? Do you want to, you know, not only live longer, but enjoy your life? Guess what? You need to address these problems that trauma has un- undoubtedly created for you. And not just the physical, I feel stuff trauma. I'm talking about the persistent, indirect, you know, conversations that you haven't had, right? Why can't you say no to people? Why do you please people? Why can't you do things for yourself? Why can't you take a vacation, right? Like, why can't you do these things for yourself and appreciate yourself? Those are problems, right? And those are problems you're not addressing with that question, right? And that's, that's the reality. Yeah. And I even look back on it and I didn't actually realize it until probably sometime in the middle of last year. When I was 10 years old, after I had been molested at 10 years old, and it was sometime in the summer of that year, um, I experienced death for the first time in December of that year, my grandma died. And I was already holding on to all of the stuff from that trauma and then having to deal with, you know, at 10 and a half years old, my grandmother dying. And, you know, I, and seeing my mom and my dad and everybody around me, all of the adults, you know, trying to deal with this as an adult and then realizing and trying to figure it all out for myself at 10 years old with everything else that was in my head that nobody knew about. And, you know, and then there was no real big thing when I was, except for graduation and college and it happened. But when I was 31 in 2010 in November, um, my grandmother in December had a a really bad stroke. We didn't think she was going to make it. She was, you know, 91 years old. And so at that point, that was like probably four to six weeks after I'd been raped and nobody knew about it except for, you know, the authorities and my therapist. And so I've got a picture on my table of, you know, my entire family around my grandma's, you know, hospital bed, knowing what's going on in the back of my head and what's going on inside of me and nobody knows. And I've got a smile on my face, you know, because I had to hide it all. And it's like, just knowing that I'm dealing with all of this shit in my head at the time by myself and then still having to put a smile on my face, still having to deal with everyday life and being a kid or being an adult and literally dying inside, but nobody knew. I became the queen of the half smile or the fake smile or, you know, I'm fine phrase. It's just, and so I don't, I don't hide it anymore. You know, I don't, if somebody wants to know how I'm doing, I'm not just going to say I'm fine. You know, I'm going to be like, okay, you know what? How much time do you have? Pull up a chair. Because, you know, you're going to hear it and you're going to have, we're going to have an honest conversation because I'm not okay. And, you know, it's, it could get ugly again, but I know how to handle it now and I know how to deal with it and I know how to voice it and get it out. So I don't sit here and think about, okay, well, my only option is death because it's not. Yep. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great conversation. It has. Uh, it's an honor. Absolutely, you know, and and this time you got to share more of your story, which is which is much more 
a much different feeling, obviously, than the last the last podcast. And the last podcast was episode 19, mind you. And this one's episode 34. So I've been busy, obviously. You have been busy. Um yeah. And it's it's been, and I got some really great feedback from people that watched that first one that we did. So awesome. It'll That's be awesome. exciting to people watch this one. Absolutely. Or watch them together. This one will probably have a trigger warning on it. This this one got a little bit more a little bit more deep than uh, most of my other ones get. So this is it's good. It's good. But it's I didn't necessary. I didn't want to sugarcoat it. You know I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to you know if people can't listen to it I apologize but you know it's I'm not going to hide it anymore. No. This is and my story and you know me I don't give a shit. No you don't give a shit. I I, I want to punch people in the face with you know I, I that's one of the things like where. I struggle with trigger warnings because I do too. really, I do. I, I respect it. I understand it at the same time. I think people need to be punched in the face by it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's certainly, you know, I struggle with it. It's, it's not, that's not me saying, uh, get rid of them, you know, but at the same time I do struggle with it and I, and I don't know if it's a good thing. I don't know if it's worth uh, worthwhile. I think it's trying to protect something within yourself that you're not willing to face. Maybe I don't know. It's a it's a conversation I think that needs to be had. Uh, I I would love to debate someone on it and and or see two people debate it and and listen in or you know be an active part of that conversation. But yeah, I'm mm-hmm. curious. You know, it's it's a it's a thing. You know, and it's a reality and people always, you know, especially in the past been like, you know, this video needs a trigger warning. And I'm like, "Mm, no, yeah, people need to hear this, right? Like people need to hear that there's evil people out there that are willing to do what they've done to you. You know, there's, there's a necessity to understand and not protect people from the reality of the world, which is, which is what. And I think my parents tried to protect us. And unfortunately at 10 years old, I learned the reality of the world. Yeah. And it was not a reality that a little girl should know or a little boy should know. They should. And I struggle with that too, because I think they should know it, but from a distance. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like my parents should have taught me this. This is a possibility. This could happen. Not literally having it happen and then having to deal with it. And, and not to, not to create fear, but to hone it, right. To help you understand that you should fear, right. I I'm not trying to, you know, this is in such an interesting conversation with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, you know, in the, in the, the fear of nuclear war, um, you know, there are, there are those people that are becoming overburdened by it. Right. But the reality is there. Like there's a potential that that it can happen. And so you need to understand the bare essentials of what it means to what what's this going to do? What what's going to happen if it does start? There should be an understanding for you of what to do if it does happen, because even if you research it, nothing happens. You might have learned something important that you can carry on, you know, that. And that's why I talked to my little sister before she went away to college. I didn't give her all of the details, but I said, you know what, this could potentially happen. And I don't want you to live through what I had to live through. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, it also creates when you have the capacity to explain to children uh, what this means, what this is, what happens, um, or what can happen, you also become an advocate for them if it does happen. Right. And that's the, that's an incredibly important part of it. And that's where you like, you know, you create that openness and understanding um, and you, you offer them a place to talk about it, you know, and that eliminates fear in many ways and it creates understanding, right? Understanding is, is the enemy of fear in many ways. And when you start to understand something, right, it, you don't fear anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You, you understand, I get it. it, makes sense. I'm not, I'm not afraid of this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, it's simple, but anyways, yeah. I don't want to take, I don't want to take the rest of your afternoon. I appreciate you coming back on. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you the, uh, the normal last question. Cause you already gave me an answer. Um, but is there, is there any final words that you want to share uh, with, with the audience or with me to, to close this out? Um, I, I did want, I just want to thank you because yes, I understand. And you and I have talked about this. I had to save my own life, but having you there helping me is something that I will never be able to thank you for. And, you know, I know you don't ever need thanks, you know, and I, I, I've, I've promised you this before and I'll say it again, I will pay it forward. You know, that's why I will always be there for somebody when and if I can, you know, but I've had to learn the boundaries, but don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to talk about the hard shit, talk about, you know, the stuff that people sweep under the rug because you could end up like, like me at, you know, 11 years old, sitting in your room wanting to kill yourself because you didn't know what else to do. And nobody should have to live like that for as many years as I did. It is awful. Yeah. And you helped me realize a lot of that. So thank you. Of course. That's mostly for you and not your listeners, but. I think, I think it was for both. There's a lot of yeah. good, a lot of good messages in there. And thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for keep on keeping on. Well, well, Katie, thank you. And for, for those of you who've made it to the end of this uh, and listened to it, uh, make sure you subscribe, make sure you follow, make sure you leave me a comment somewhere. If you can uh, tell me what you think. I try and read them. I don't always, I'm not always able to, respond to them, but I do try and read them. Uh, and thank you very much. And we'll see you next time on the Dylan experience. Too easy. That is it. <laughs>